0: Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers.
1: And I'm Chris Benderev.
0: And this is Embedded.
1: And these episodes about coal and jobs during the first year in change of Donald Trump's administration are in order. So if you haven't, go back and listen from the beginning.
0: So at this point, we are still in the early months of the administration. And some people in the coal counties where we're spending time are feeling pretty good about coal. There's Kyle, the young guy who really wants to be a coal miner, even though most people say it's a dying industry and Gary the mine operator who was about to fold and put more than 20 people out of work and who's starting to hire again as for why this is happening some people say it all started when Trump got elected it was like overnight
2: everything just started to rise you know the coal price went up i've never seen as many coal trucks as i have just driving around as just as he's got elected you know
3: without trump we wouldn't going to be we wouldn't going to have a
0: job
2: Actually, the day that he was inaugurated on, I started back to work, so.
0: <laughs> but like we said, it is not just about Trump. And Some people talk about that too, like Joe Street.
1: Joe owns a company that makes conveyor belts for mines. It's in Buchanan County, Virginia. And in early 2017, we go to see him. And while he's eating breakfast, he tells us how great business has been. Right now, we are backed up in orders. So I ask him, when did things start getting better? And then he says something that surprises me. Since when? Probably uh, September. September 2016. I ask him twice, just to make sure I heard him right, because September 2016, of course, is before Trump won the election. And he says, yeah, September.
0: While we're talking to Joe, two other guys walk in. They work for a company that runs coal mines in West Virginia and Kentucky. And they say their company's hiring dozens of new people. And giving raises to people who already work there, so they won't leave. And when I ask one of those guys why things are getting better, he says this.
2: What it amounts to is uh, some Chinese guy sitting in an office, somewhere determining the world, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) What it amounts to is some Chinese guy sitting in an office, determining the world. And he's mostly right. Here's what happened. In spring 2016, the Chinese government reduced the number of days that coal mines in China could operate. You can do this in a command economy.
1: Then the world's coal supply goes down, and the price of Met Coal quadruples. And Met Coal, remember, is the kind of coal they use to make steel, not energy. And it's the majority of what they mine in these coal counties.
0: And there's another thing that affected the price of Met Coal right after the election. There was a cyclone in Australia.
2: The full force of Cyclone Debbie started to...
1: Australia is a big exporter of Met Coal. So again, supply goes down and the price of Met Coal goes up again.
0: And remember, when we first started talking to people in the coal counties, people told us there was this war on coal during the Obama administration. And then Donald Trump got elected and things started to bounce back. Now we know that's not exactly what happened. For some people, though, it doesn't really matter why the coal market is doing better. Because in a place where so many jobs have been lost, a few new jobs are a few new jobs. The question is, will the new jobs last?
4: Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Showtime documentary series, The Fourth Estate, a four-part series that takes you inside the New York Times as its reporters and editors deal with new challenges during the first year of the Trump administration. The Fourth Estate, starting May 27th, only on Showtime. Go to Showtime.com and enter code EMBEDDED to receive a 30-day free trial. Offer expires June 24th.
1: On this week's Code Switch, we have the fascinating history of a super popular tattoo style called black and gray realism.
4: Prison
2: ingenuity.
4: <laughs> Listen to the Code Switch podcast to hear more on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Okay, we're back. And remember Kyle Johnson from our last episode? He's the guy who's just driving around in his truck trying to get a coal mining job kind of obsessed with coal and the way he found out there was this upturn in met coal was one day in his truck he hears an ad on the radio are you an experienced underground or certified inexperienced miner looking for a change gms is accepting applications today Contact
2: i heard an advertisement on the radio to hire for coal mining jobs and i hadn't heard that
4: in years Do you need $20 to $22 per hour with an excellent benefits package? Here it is. Benefits include health.
1: It's indescribable. It's just like, you
2: know, something's happening and it's finally good.
1: Kyle applies to the company from the ad and a bunch of other companies, but nothing works out. Every time I check in with him, it's a different version of the same story. Canceled job interviews at mines, sometimes getting stood up for interviews, and Kyle's not sure what to do. I'm
2: running out of places to go just about at this point. (laughs) I mean, you can't make somebody give you a job. And
1: And every day, Kyle calls up his friend Isaiah Thomas, who works an office job, to tell him how it's going. The conversation usually goes something like this. Isaiah says no one is going to hire a new miner when there are so many experienced miners already out of work. And then Kyle tells him, no, no, I've got a solid lead this time,
2: a mine that wants me to come back to visit. And I said, no, they don't, man. You're a kid that keeps calling and agitating them, and they're just messing with you.
1: Hello? Hey, Kyle, it's Chris. And then, after months of driving around and handing out resumes, Kyle's got some news.
2: There's been some developments I can update you on. Please let me know. I got a job.
1: Congratulations. Yeah, so (laughs) there's that. Kyle is happier than I've ever heard him.
2: It's like it's about time something happened.
1: (laughs) That's not all that happened. After getting the offer, Kyle moved out of his parents' house, and he rented his own apartment in a tiny town about an hour away to be closer to the mine. But the more Kyle talks, the more I worry that this job offer is not quite as solid as he thinks it is. Here's how the whole thing went down. Apparently, about a week and a half ago, the foreman at this tiny mine that Kyle had been pestering for weeks, he called Kyle up to his office. And he told Kyle he'd have work for him soon. I asked Kyle if he got anything in writing. And he says no. He basically just shook on it with the mine foreman. Then I asked, how long till soon? I mean,
2: he said, he'd, I'm like, I'm hired. It's just I'm going to check in with him tomorrow just to try to get uh, the ballpark.
1: Apparently the mine foreman is really busy with a complicated project right now. He hasn't returned any of Kyle's calls. So do you know a day yet, or just like
2: you have a sense of generally? It's it's it's, it's not a specific day. He said it'd take about a week and a half, two weeks. And I was like, oh my gosh, Kyle. You don't have a job yet, and you went renting an apartment an hour and a half away from home, and you're gonna live there, and you don't even have a job yet.
1: The next time I talk to Kyle, he is still in limbo, waiting to get a start date. But then, finally, weeks after he got that sort of job offer, and about 10 months after he first heard that radio ad and decided to go for a cold job, Kyle gets a call. Well, actually, he sleeps through a call.
2: I woke up at about, I don't know, in between 6.30 and 7, I don't know, and I had a missed call from the mine. So I called him back, and Chucky's like, you still want a job? And I was like, you're dang right I do and uh, so I went up there and signed paper, got a drug test, and that's pretty much all there was to it. All he said was get ready to shovel and be here at 6.30 in the morning on Monday. And I was like, all right, sounds good. The first thing he said to me, he says, I did it. I got me a job and I'm working. And I said, oh, well, I guess I was a little bit wrong on that one. And he goes, no, you were way wrong, Isaiah. I was excited that he could do something that he's always wanted to do. You know, whether he hated it or loved it, at least he'd get that out of his system. I was more worried for him because take away the fact that job security, take away all these other things, it's still a dangerous job. I mean, there's not a ton of serious injuries, but when it does go bad, it goes bad. You're You're in a hole and you have nowhere to go.
1: Of the two of them, Kyle's always been more comfortable taking risks. Isaiah tells me when they ride dirt bikes, Kyle's the daredevil, wrecking his bike on tricks he shouldn't be trying. But at the same time, for all of his worrying, Isaiah
2: gets why Kyle wants to be a coal miner. Because he's been tempted too. Oh, absolutely. Everybody's had that thought. When you see guys that are making $30 an hour in an area that 15 is the norm, I mean, and a lot of coal miners make far and well above that. I mean like not all the mines shut down ever there's always been mines running so it's like what says i can't be the guy over there running the last mine like yeah maybe someone else gets laid off that's your, your thought but if i make my spot work my way up make myself valuable who's to say i can't stay in that thing and have a career and not go and get thirty thousand dollars in student debt but instead make thirty thousand dollars and a half a year coal mining and but then what do you think next that yeah. made you not do that Coal mining is a turbulent, turbulent occupation, and it's dangerous, and it's dirty. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody that coals mines, but I've just always been speculative with Kyle about, you know, it's not a prosperous future as far as, you know, job security goes, but he's gonna do what he wants to do. He always has, he's went straight for it.
1: Isaiah's got one other reason that he's worried about his friend. He says, growing
2: up, Kyle was not exactly a fan of small enclosed spaces. He couldn't even get in the back of my dad's truck because he would get so scared of being trapped in the back of my dad's truck. So I was like, there's no way that a kid that's super claustrophobic is going to a three-foot hole where there's nothing you can see and it's black everywhere. There's just no way. So Isaiah's prediction? Kyle will only last about a month underground.
4: Support for NPR comes from Stitcher, a free podcast app for iPhone and Android. Stitcher has 150,000 great podcasts. Hear shows like Radiolab. Freakonomics Radio, and Invisibilia, and find your next obsession with Stitcher's smart recommendations and playlists. Plus, Stitcher has a premium service with more than 21,000 hours of original shows, bonus episodes, and ad-free archives you can only hear in Stitcher Premium. Download the free Stitcher app at getstitcher.com. Support also comes from Newsy, the TV news channel with honest, in-depth context on the stories that matter, Newsy is for people who aren't satisfied with getting only the loudest part of the story. Newsy delivers more, more context, more solutions, and greater understanding of the people and events that shape our world. Learn more at newsy.com/watch. Before she was on the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg spent years trying to convince judges and other Supreme Court justices to think differently about women and the law.
0: She sometimes felt a bit like a kindergarten teacher for the courts because they were almost all male. And on the Supreme Court, they were all male.
4: A look at the legacy of the notorious RBG. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.
0: All right, we're back. And the last time we saw Gary Dotson, he was on the verge of having to close down his coal mining business to basically put 20-some people out of work. But then, after Trump got elected and the Met coal market went up, he was hoping things at his company would turn around.
1: So remember, we're still in 2017, the early months of the Trump administration. I text Gary, and he writes back that it's a bad day. Don't come today. The next day, when I go to the mine, his voice is just flat. The day before, the bad day. There was a bunch of rain, one of their pipes broke, and they had to shut down the mine and pump water out all day. Spent a lot of money yesterday.
3: We probably spent probably $25,000 yesterday just on pumps alone, And that's producing no-co. <laughs> it's tough. And you're still waiting on money from the company. You you don't have any. You know, you're just still sitting here waiting on your payday. And Friday, we'll, we will be a month behind on pay.
1: So not only do they have to stop production the day before because of the pumps, but the company that's contracted Gary to mine the coal, they're not paying him on time. And this is surprising because we just learned that the Met Coal industry is in the middle of this major upswing. With coals, the prices are up.
3: Yeah, yeah, they are for them,
1: but not for us. Here's what's been happening. Each month, the company's either been paying Gary half of what he's owed, or a third of what he's owed. And then the next payday, another half or a third. So each month, the company owes him more and more money. And he has no idea when they're gonna pay. And then?
3: Cavalier, it's Gary.
1: It's the company. And they say they'll pay him half. That's good news, even though it's not great news. yeah. Yeah, it's
3: always a burden lifted whenever you know you get paid. And he's relieved.
0: But then I go back the next day, and Gary is not happy. He's hard to hear. He's lowered his voice so the guys in the next room won't hear him. But he's like, You tell Chris, they didn't give me half, they only gave me a third. Ask him what he's gonna do. And he says, The only thing to do is sit and wait.
3: You just have to sit and wait.
0: That's the way it is," he says, "and it's it and it's not going to change.
3: And it's not going to change."
0: He tells me well, how he found out. that lady called. It was a woman from the company who called and apologized when she said it was only going to be a well, third, not a half.
3: Listen, I said that's not your fault. You only work here.
0: Yeah. I
3: can't say that to you.
0: Yeah.
3: And she just said, "You know, I'm sorry." She said, "I know. I told you it was half." She said, "But, honey, it's a third." And I said, "You're kidding me." She said, "No." No, I'm not kidding.
0: (laughs) As you can hear, Gary's mad, but he's chill. That's how Gary does. I'm kind of livid. I'm like, can't you fight back? But then he explains it to me. Even though the Met coal market has bounced back some, it's not like there are tons of companies out there that want to offer him a new contract to mine coal. Which means it's not like Gary can just go to his existing company and say, if you don't pay me, I'm walking. Gary's stuck.
3: There's no other place to go, and they know it.
0: This is one of the things that happens when an industry is shrinking, right? There are fewer companies out there, and Gary has no leverage. We should say we reached out to the company that contracts Gary many times to ask about what he's saying, that they're not paying him on time. But they didn't respond. I also talked to a few journalists and lawyers who follow the coal industry in eastern Kentucky, where Gary's mine is... When I asked them about a company not paying on time, they all said they weren't that surprised. When times are good, one of them said, coal tycoons light cigars with hundred-dollar bills. When they're bad, they cut back everybody but themselves. By the end of 2017, the first year of Donald Trump, Gary's got some other problems. One of his partners has left the company. He has an illness that's not related to the mine. His uniform has been cleaned and folded and left on a chair in the mine office. And Gary has some serious decisions to make about the mine operation. The company is still not paying him on time. Gary says he's barely making enough to get by. And he needs to buy a thing called a proximity sensor. And this really helps me understand why Gary and his partners complain about federal regulations, but also why these regulations make sense. So, a proximity sensor is this thing that goes onto a continuous miner. That's that huge piece of equipment that does the main work in the mine. And basically, what it is is if a person gets too close to the miner, the sensor just shuts the whole thing down. The feds say it's the kind of thing that over the course of a decade could prevent 49 people from being injured and nine people from being killed. So, kind of a good thing. But for Gary, it means he has to lay out a bunch more money. Not only does he have to buy a prox, as they call it, but he will also have to get a new continuous miner. And he has to get a new one that will allow for the prox to be installed. All of this will cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is money that Gary does not have. Back in the day, when the industry was doing better, the company you have a contract with might co-sign on a loan. Not now. So Gary and his partners have to decide whether to put their houses up as collateral.
3: And if you make it, you keep your home. If you don't make it, you lose it. <laughs> it's just the way it works.
0: And if they don't put their houses up as collateral?
3: Well, you got to shut down. you got to leave. No other thing.
1: I talked about Gary's situation with an economist at the University of Virginia. He studies coal, and he grew up in Appalachia, a couple hours from Gary's mine. And he says that all signs suggest that this uptick in met coal prices is just a blip. Yes, Australian and Chinese supply got way out of whack... But eventually, he says, they won't be. And the big companies know this. Blips, if that's what this upturn is, benefit the owners of big companies who sell coal on the global market. Not guys like Gary.
0: There are, of course, a lot of people in these counties whose lives aren't all about coal. Remember Brad, the guy who worked at the hotel where we always stay? The one who has no interest in coal but is looking for a better job?
2: I can't pack up and move on a minimum wage job. It has to be a worthwhile job, something that can make it to where I can afford to leave is basically all I'm waiting for.
1: On one of our visits, we check into the hotel, but we don't see Brad at the front desk. I get a text from him. Well, Chris, it's official, he writes. I am now a resident of Richlands, Richlands, Virginia. It's about an hour away and six times the size of the town where Brad used to live. Brad made it out of Buchanan County. But, as you'll hear, staying out gets a lot more complicated.
0: On the next Embedded, whose jobs are these, anyway?
3: We was good coal miners. We can mine that coal and we can get it out. And that's what they wanted.
0: These episodes were reported and written by Chris Benderev and me. They were produced by Chris, Lisa Pollock, and Noor Wazwaz. They were edited by Lisa and mixed by Chris. We also had editing help from Benny Becker, Neil Caruth, Tom Dreisbach, Neva Grant, Rebecca Hersher, Jennifer Ludden, and Mark Memet. Huge thanks to Taylor Kirkendall from S&P Global Market Intelligence for cold jobs data. Fact-checking was by Greta Pittenger. Our lawyer is Ashley Messenger. Our theme song is by Colin Wamsgans. Other original music is by Ramteen Arablouei. You can see photographs by Carol Guzzi of The People in these stories at npr.org. Thanks also to Bill Show, Ruth Sherlock, Joe Street, Rima McKean, Susan Stansel, Corita Brown, Elizabeth Cat, Chris Dillow, Tony Matney, Ginny McClanahan, Tom McLaughlin, Kate Larkin, Elizabeth Barrett, and Roger May. Embedded is executive produced by Anya Grundman, Chris Turpin, and me. We are back next week with more Cole stories. Subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, hit us up on Twitter at NPR Embedded. That's all. Thanks.